Chris was talking a lot about when he's traveling and he's away from his family, this idea of looking up at the night sky and being comforted by the fact that when his daughters look up at the sky, they can see the same stars. So this piece is very much about that experience of being in Phoenix, seeing stars, being able to see stars. As we grow, our relationship to the sky changes. So as children, it might be something wondrous that we don't we don't understand the science behind what are these twinkling lights in the sky we're just entranced together that's los angeles-based choral composer dale trumbor she'll be joining the phoenix chorale again this weekend for the world premiere of her brand new piece titled little you looking up i'm melissa green welcome to a new episode of heart of the arts So you're a favorite of Phoenix Corral. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your history with the Corral? So I worked with the executive director of the Phoenix Corral, Nicole Belmont, uh, before she got to the Phoenix Corral, back when she was with a New York-based group called Coral Chameleon, and knew that she was lovely to work with. And so when she went over to Phoenix, uh, I was thrilled to get to work with her again and to get to know Chris. Uh, the artistic director, uh, conductor there, who is so good at programming and a joy just watching, even when I'm not on the program, seeing how he puts together a concert and this blend of classical repertoire, but also really modern, interesting arrangements of sometimes even pop music mixed with contemporary classical, which is the genre that I write in. It's very this word is used so easily, but like spiritual and celestial ethereal worlds. Uh, What was one of those moments in childhood or like, was it the ensembles you were involved in or was it like a specific voice that you heard that really had a strong impact on you? I grew up singing in a church choir and in my school choirs. And I also, I think around seventh or eighth grade, my best friend at the time came over and she had a Tori Amos CD and she she went to put it on my little CD player that could hold five CDs at a time, which was a big deal. Oh so yeah. It was a it of was, course. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um so she puts on this album and I was like, this is amazing. It was the first time I think I fell in love with an artist, like their whole catalog. Like I just wanted to get everything I possibly could. So that was a big influence on, let's say like 12, 13 year old me. Yeah. Yeah. Her radio hit was silent all these years. She's like an amazing pianist, classically trained. All of those in all of those styles. Would you say that you are similar in a way where you're like, I can compose, you know, some of your pieces have this gorgeous cello arranged for it like are you one of those that can just dip into everything i try to be i mean i I think as a composer you aspire to sort of do all the things um i will say i'm not a singer songwriter i have an an okay voice for karaoke if it's just among friends but i do i think very much my piano writing because i'm a pianist i uh i took lessons I would say this is the least interesting thing any artist can say in their bio is like, I started lessons when I was seven because it's you and literally everyone else. Yeah. Um, but 
I, you know, I, I started singing in choirs, taking piano lessons and composing all around the same time. So we talked about Tori, we talked about classical music, and then my mom also loved musical theater. And so she would play that mm -hmm. on the piano and she would play recordings a lot. And I fell in love with older musicals like Guys and Dolls uh, and Cabaret is one of my favorite musicals, if not yes. my absolute favorite. Yeah. Liza Minnelli is like the cutest. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had, and I sort of came to writing for orchestral music and now I have a couple of pieces for wind ensemble. I came to that a little bit later because I was a piano kid. I was accompanying singers, undergrad musical theater things and yeah. yeah. But I feel yeah. like that that kind of experience, I just talked to the composer who does music for Cirque du Soleil. His kind of first educational training was being a pianist for this dance studio. And he would just kind of have to improvise as they would dance and do their routine. And I feel like he was like, I got such a good education doing that. Also because improvisation isn't really part of that music education in college. And I was a classical guitarist. So like, you know, that maybe there wasn't a whole bunch of room for that as maybe with piano, but how would you say that experience shaped your ability or your ear even? I think I just being exposed to a lot of different styles of music is so helpful to a beginning composer, especially, but really anyone at any stage of their career. As an artist, I think you want to keep being challenged by different styles mm -hmm. uh, and genres. And as you were talking, I was thinking I had this awful professor in college who I think was a guitarist, but um, we, there were a couple of, like a couple of us classical music majors in the class and he was convinced that all classical music it's just like you're playing cover songs like you play a symphony and it's like a cover song and there's nothing okay. original uh, I, obviously as a composer i hated that and but also i think a lot of instrumentalists are interested in arranging or composing or just improvising right like we were saying yeah Mm -hmm. It's so important to keep that muscle, that creative muscle alive, even if no one ever hears what you're doing. It can be fun yeah. to just sit alone in your room and, you know. Yeah. And I come from a singer songwriter background. So that was always kind of my creative outlet. When did you write your first song or like piece of music? I think I was seven or eight. And I actually have one surviving piece from that. It's like handwritten. The notes are huge, right? The, the staves are, the staff paper is like very large because <laughs> I was a child um, and yeah. it's like eight measures and it's it's all in one key. Except it's like in G okay. major. And then at the end, there's just like an E major chord, which comes out of nowhere. And I still, it's funny because I'm like, that's kind of how my music is now. <laughs> Mm. where we just abruptly shift tonalities in a mm -hmm. way that I hope makes sense to the listener and is also surprising. Yeah, so fun to look back on, to see, to pull out those parts of you. I had a psychology professor in college ask me or ask all of us, are you any different than you were when you were five? And I was like, gosh, I'm so similar to that five-year-old me in so many ways. Speaking of, so what is your belief system rooted in? If you don't mind me asking, you know, because your music can be so angelic and, and spiritual. So I am agnostic, but sometimes I, I like to say I'm an atheist who hopes she's wrong, which technically I think puts me more in the agnostic camp because as you've noticed, my music is very much about this idea of something greater than ourselves, <laughs> believing in that. And I think because I was raised Episcopalian and because I, I was lucky enough to have churches that were really open-minded and 
not exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Um, people joke Episcopalianism is like Catholic light um, <laughs> because it's like, very welcoming. Yeah. Um, uh, I think because I was raised in a church tradition, even though I am not a member of any organized religion now, I'm still trying to capture that feeling in choral music. I just finished mm-hmm. a, a, an hour long, uh, or maybe a little over an hour long, a choral piece that has audience singing in it as a way of getting that communal feeling, that that feeling of, again, embracing something like we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. We can feel like we're really rooted in community when we all sing together. Do you think that like, because I talked to Sarah Kirkland Snyder about her most recent mass, and I'm like, I feel like and even talking to Christopher Gabitas when I first got here, I was like, I feel like there is somewhat of a shift happening to where whatever that higher thing that we all come from is. Do you think that's always been part of the message? Because when I look at every single religion, I mean, even going back to ancient Egypt and before that, it's like, you know, religions have the same tone. Yeah, it's funny. I, I wonder if for some composers who, you know, all they were doing was writing religious music if it was if there was an element of it just being a job yeah because they had to write so much music Pump but, it at the, out. but at the same time i think absolutely i know for me i find that in nature that sense of something greater right yeah uh, i feel like yeah. there's more of a text like that and i personally couldn't find a link to your piece which we'll talk about in a second your new premiere but i feel like that tone is changing a little bit and it's almost kind of like encouraging people to ascend or be like the best version of themselves yeah yeah i i like to talk about the music sort of meeting the audience where they're at emotionally and then asking myself as a composer how do i leave them in a better place then they started the Girl Scout motto of hiking and and like if you see trash on the hiking trail, you're leaving the trail better than you found it. Yes. I really love that idea. And this is not, you know, this is not my idea, but I, I love the idea of applying it to art and asking it about every piece you write. And so for me, that manifests a lot as it, like if I am feeling anxious about something or if I'm feeling fearful of thinking about death or thinking about just any sort of grief or loss, whether it's a big a big loss or a small loss, right? Um, mm-hmm. Something every day that we're confronting that feels challenging. I love asking myself, what can music, and specifically choral music, because it's rooted in text, usually there's a poem or another form of words, right? That, that allows us to convey meaning in an overt way that instrumental music, of course, can do all of those things, but it's not as easily accessible on the surface, I think, as when there's text. When there's text, you know, you give the audience something to latch onto, mm-hmm. and that's really important to me. I have a book that I wrote on anxiety oh, and self-doubt for musicians. Oh my gosh, Post. yeah, I forgot. God, I wanted to ask you about that. And uh, again, your music talks about helping people kind of follow those natural instincts. How do you, what was the genesis of your book? So I, I'm all about this, the idea, uh, I think there's a, there's a a Toni Morrison quote out there. That's something like create the art you want to see in the world, or maybe it, it, it might be because it's Toni Morrison, it might be, write the book that you wish you could read, right? It's it's something oh. to that effect. And so I very much still struggle with generalized anxiety and social anxiety, but I have gotten really great at composing. <laughs> I'm not saying great at composing. I'm saying composing without, there's more to that sentence, mm-hmm. um, composing without imposing judgment uh, in the moment 
without asking, like, should this be good? This isn't good enough, right? I, I ask questions like, can this music be better? But really the book in a sentence is learning to recognize your own process, getting so familiar with your own process that truly nothing can derail you from doing your best art. Knowing those moments, for me, it's it's really knowing that like about two thirds of the way through the process of creating literally anything, it could be an article, it happened in the book itself, it happens at every piece I write, I just want to throw it out because I think the whole thing is garbage. And once I recognized that pattern, it made it so much easier to get to that moment and still feel kind of awful, like it doesn't feel great, but I'm not adding stress to the stress. I'm not adding anxiety to the anxiety. I'm just, I know now that the answer for me at that moment is to step away for a day or two and know that that feeling will pass and that it makes it so much easier to deal with those hard emotions. When you know you've been through it, you, you are aware, you're tracking your own process, your own anxieties, and you're seeing where they're likely to come up. And I think this extends even beyond the act of creating too, just where in your life or do you have a tendency to feel, you know, really tense inside? Really, and what's the dialogue yeah. going on in my brain? Yeah, like, can I can I change that? Because why am I thinking this thought? Like it it takes time to I don't know rewire some of that stuff. But music and and you know just like putting people on the spot is such a good way to. I got my music ed degree, but I teach. Mm kindergartners and sometimes they're like we'll do like listening games where they have to close their eyes and see who sang and they know who it is and then they're so timid i mean i, I know they're scared but i'm like go with your first instinct because you're right you know i love that yeah just yeah. trusting that trusting, yeah the instincts like you said in a piece maybe but you might look back and be like oh wait oh i found out i could actually do this weird harmony and then go here so yeah and knowing that there's, I, I love to view things as a prototype. It's how I, it's my way of not getting too attached to anything I do is this is just the best I can do now with the resources I have on hand as the person I am now with the knowledge I have now and tomorrow or 10 years from now, that's going to be different. I mm -hmm. will still be me, but my opinions will have shifted. I'll have different yeah. resources, different tools and that's okay. It's okay if a work from 10 years ago, I, I feel no longer reflects where I am now because that's a snapshot of who I was. And mm -hmm. I did my best with the resources I had then as the person I was then. Do right now and let it be a prototype for whatever you're gonna do next. Yeah, so how would you describe how the inspiration comes in for you? Like you said, you know, a lot of pieces are inspired by ancient texts or poetry. For me, it's all about the poem or I, I say poem, but it could be, you know, an excerpt from a novel. Yeah. Um, and it's really important too to have uh, permission from the poet. So I mm. work with a lot of living poets where I have an established connection and I can just send them an email and say, you know, I saw this new poem of yours. I really love it. Can I set it to, you know, can I pay you? Can we have a contract? Can I set it to music? So there's this funny like business oh, cool. side of the practicality of, is this either public domain or can I get in touch with the author? Okay. And then once that's in place, I have maybe like 20 to 30 poems that I'm just sort of sitting on in a, in a word document that I know I love, that I know I want to work with at some point. And I love having those in the back of my mind mm -hmm. to think about. And then when a conductor responds 
to one of those, like when I'm suggesting poems that could work for a piece and they, we, we latch onto that poem together. Then I try and take all the inspiration I can possibly get from that poem in terms of the rhythm. What's the, the natural prosody of the words? Do they suggest a melodic contour? Um, like sometimes when I talk about this, I like to take whatever I just said and, and point out how it's already musical. So I just yes. point out how it's already musical. You can hear a rhythm in that, right? And you can hear mm -hmm. the stresses and you can hear where my voice goes point out where it's already musical, right? It's, it's going up, it's going down. Yeah. There's so much already in how we speak words that that makes my job easier, but it also allows so much creative freedom. How am I stretching it? How am I playing with it? How am I asking if a poem also has a certain atmosphere, ambiance, or does it suggest a certain scale or certain series of chords? And every composer yeah. will have a different answer to that. And I think that's where the, that element of like the road trip downloads, right? Being in the shower, yeah. um, a long walk. Once I know what I want the piece to be about, and maybe it's, maybe if it doesn't have text, because I do write beyond choral music too. I write orchestral pieces, I write chamber music pieces. Yeah. But it has, it's still, for me, it has to be some idea that's grounded outside of music. And once I have mm. that, then I try and build in those spaces. Life inspires art or art inspires life. Which way is it? Both. It's both. <laughs> both. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause I go back okay. and forth all the time. <laughs> I was like, no, I thought it was this way. And like this month I'm like, no, it's definitely life inspires art. It's totally, it should go both ways. Right. And another saying that I think is like totally wrong is those who can't do teach. Cause like the best doers, Bach, J.S. Bach taught his whole life. Um, where does, is there any, you know, cause you have your master's, you did English and your BA in music. So what educational opportunities do you enjoy taking advantage of? I taught piano for 10 years on and off, and I made all my piano students compose too. So it was oh, sort of nice. sneaky composition and piano lessons, uh, which I wanted them to just feel like it was normal to do that. Like we were, we were talking about improvising. Yeah, that's a big part of uh, being a musician, even if no one ever hears that. And so I, yeah. I wanted all of these, mostly kids, to be really comfortable sitting down and just making things up and having that be a normal part of their practicing. Yeah. I think it's it's so much more fulfilling than just sitting down and like drilling your scales, right? That's that can be very important. Yeah. We want to we want to nurture that creativity. Like I said, you're kind of one of their favorite composers to perform. So how has the communication been? Because this is the uh, world premiere of the new piece, Looking Up. Little you looking up. <laughs> yeah. So how has that process been going? Are you and Chris just basically talking back and forth? Um, you have a new album coming out with this world premiere. So how has that process been going? There's a lot of trust there. We communicated a lot about the score. Uh, so I sent over the the score in its finished-ish form, right? Mm -hmm. Where I, it feels, I feel good about the music, but I want to allow space for the conductor to have questions, to say, can we, you know, shorten this pause? Or can this part be even louder? Or can we add a note here to make this chord even thicker and fuller? And I love those little changes because I want each commission to be tailored to the group that it's written for. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, a friend, Dominic DiOrio, who's a wonderful composer who compares a commission to a bespoke suit. Like you want it to be tailored, right? Wow. It's really fitting you 
specifically. It, yeah. It's made for your body or it is made for your voice, your singers. And I love that. I love that metaphor so much. Yeah. And tying back onto what you said about doing covers, it's like I can hear someone cover a song just with guitar and voice and it has a whole new meaning for me or I'm just like you know oh gosh I've heard this like four or five times and now I get it so that's what I really just tailing back on what you just said it's kind of like someone's own interpretation can be really important they might put an emphasis on this word or you might just hear a phrase differently and you're just like oh my gosh I connect so much more I actually I love cover songs for that reason (laughs) That's what, yeah, to go back to Tori Amos, I, I, she has a whole, multiple albums. There's, there's at least one, I think I had one that was like a bootleg something like live covers Yeah. Um, that I loved because they, they were so different. They, mm. they were just drastically different from mm. the original and that's what made them great. And that's what made me love them as a listener. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the world premiere of the piece and the meaning behind it? Yeah. So this piece, Little You Looking Up, is it, it sets a poem that I wrote, which okay. is something I do more and more these days. I have a background in English. I, I have a you know a whole degree. I have a double degree. <laughs> so I have a whole yeah. degree in English with a focus in writing poetry. And then I, I really neglected that for about seven years and didn't write any poems. And then was like, this is so silly. I'm, I work with poems all the time and I, I am a poet. And why am I so hesitant to embrace that? And I think it was because my composing career had gotten to a certain point and I had just neglected writing. And so it, it felt harder to get back into that. But now, yeah. I'm, now I'm writing a lot more texts. So this new piece, I wrote the poem and uh, talked to Chris a lot about how to how to make the words fit this piece, how to make the words sort of custom tailored to the group yeah. as well. And so Chris was talking a lot about when he's traveling and he's away from his family, this idea of looking up at the night sky and and being comforted by the fact that when his daughters look up at the sky, they can see the same stars that he can see when he's away from them, which is adorable, right? It's, it's so I charming. love that. Yeah. I go stargazing in Phoenix all the time. So I love that just because there's a lot going on up there. Yeah. And so and, much more than LA, right? We have the mount, like to the mountains or, or just to a different state or a different part of California, not Southern California. Basically, you have to drive to Palm Springs and be in the desert. Exactly. Which is fun. But yeah, so this piece is very much about that experience of being in Phoenix, seeing stars, being able to see stars. And it's it's about uh, how we change as we grow our relationship to the sky changes. So as children, it might be something wondrous that we don't we don't understand the science behind what are these twinkling lights in the sky. We're just entranced. Yeah. And as we get older, we might it might become even like a, a reminder of how small we are and maybe even something fearful. Like I know that's so one experience that I talk about in this poem uh, is either reading or hearing on the news that there was scientists were reporting that an asteroid was going to crash into the earth in like so many years far in the future. And yeah. it like, it had no bearing on our lifetimes. I don't know why this was a headline at the time. This is like at some point in the, I don't know, early nineties say, okay. and like I, I was little, I was like maybe six and 
my mom tried to comfort me by saying, oh, like, we'll be dead by then, which was not the right thing to say, because then I was panicking. Like, oh, I'm just going to be dead. Because then I was panicking that I was going to be dead. Exactly. And, and my mom was going to be dead. I, I just sort of freaked out in that moment. And remember various points in my life feeling like looking up and feeling that fear or that terror and that smallness. And then, and then I think so that the end of the poem circles back to the idea of actually feeling comforted by the sky and in a way feeling comforted by how small we are and mm -hmm. feeling tied to different generations. That idea of looking up and seeing the same stars, not just within our own family when we're apart, but even over centuries, right? Yeah, you're looking at the same moon that, you know, Leonardo da Vinci looked at and Pythagoras and all that stuff. It's like, ooh. Exactly. Now I'm like, I should have put that in the poem. That's very poetic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. So I, I kind of want to wrap it up by just talking um, about what you're looking forward to and someone could expect who maybe hasn't been to a choral concert yet yeah i love to suggest that if you get to a concert early and you're not as familiar with say choral music you spend some time just looking at the the poems ahead of time not just so you can understand the singers but you can actually think like a composer and sort of make it a fun i don't want to say a fun exercise because that sounds like schoolwork, but a fun yeah. challenge for yourself to to ask like well if you're listening to this interview, right, maybe you've heard me talk about things like thinking about the texture, the, the, the chords, the way the melody goes, where's the emphasis on certain words and asking yourself, well, like, would I, would this be, would I move really fast through this poem? Are there moments where the words on the page go really quickly and then they sort of slow down? What might be the loudest moment? What feels really dramatic? And is the composer gonna make that a really dramatic moment? Or are they gonna go the complete opposite direction and make it a really small, tender sort of internal moment? I love doing that with other composers texts, even just that, seeing because we're all so different in our approach to words. Yeah. So in this piece, too, it's I think it's going to be about 10 minutes long. I never truly know until I'm working with the choir. Yeah, you know, it's cool. Like sometimes I'll see a recording of a Brahms symphony. I'm like, how is it 15 minutes off? And I'm like, okay, they didn't go and repeat this little B section or what have you. Yeah, it's wild. And again, I, I love that too. I love, I love how every conductor makes the piece different. And so the premiering conductor or the, or the performers sometimes too, right, get to shape the piece and that becomes what gets written down on the score. But then there's an element of just any other future group that does this piece can keep playing with those moments and stretching time, right? I, I like to say music is a time-based language. So we exist in time. Our perception of how long the piece is might be different from how long it actually is, right? Based on yeah. how we perceive whether we're really into it or whether, whether we hate the piece and it's just dragging on forever. Hopefully yeah. people will not have that experience listening to little you looking up. But I, I just, I, I think it's such a cool medium for any any piece, any art that's about the passing of time, it makes so much sense to write music about it because yeah. we that's just how we naturally perceive music and take it in, like just take it into our bodies and hold it, right? And that's what makes me think of choral music like this, like you're trying to bring everyone up to, like you said, kind of their their highest level or their best self. I think about so much, I think about the words and what are the words doing and how am I expressing the words? So we're on this emotional journey, but I, 
of course I'm thinking about the music itself. And I love that idea that maybe on a level that I'm not even fully comprehending the sounds, just the sounds and the vibrations. Yeah. Giving this sort of healing effect too. I think that's really beautiful. And I love that it's all locals too. Like, I don't know if you've heard the phrase American Airlines Choir, where uh-uh. some, of the big, some of the big groups, like they fly in the same people. So it's like choir A is flying in these singers and then choir B is flying in the same singers. And so they have the same sound because it's the same singers, but they're, oh. there's like a different conductor and a different name. People describe the Phoenix as this warm, different sound. And, yeah. and that's because they're not an American Airlines. It's, it's quotes like it's, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe it's long Delta, but it's, yeah. They're I love just, that. They're local singers who just really love singing and are pros and yeah. Yeah, they're pros. Anything you're looking forward to doing here in Phoenix? I mean, I know you're just a hop away. Do you get to hang out or are you kind of, are you busy? I'm looking forward to seeing some of the singers from who I got to know last year from a different concert, working with them okay. and spending time with them. And I know it's going to be 90 something degrees when I'm there, but I, I'm maybe this time I, I would love to hike a little or just be outside somewhere beautiful. Congrats again on the world premiere in your new album. And thanks so much again for, for doing this. Lastly, where can mm-hmm. our listeners find out more about you or where can they follow you on social media? So I'm on Instagram. I'm not particularly active there, but it's just my name at Dale Trumpor. Uh, and my website is really the best place to find what I'm doing now. And you've got links there. Yeah. So many links. That's choral composer Dale Trumbor, who is back in Phoenix, joining the Phoenix Chorale for the world's premiere of her brand new piece, Little You Looking Up. There are two opportunities to hear this tomorrow evening, October 13th at 7.30 p.m. at First United Methodist Church in Mesa and Saturday, October 14th at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Phoenix. For more information, head to phoenixchorale.org. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.